Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to SinCensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. Charlie and Linda Bloom are the founders of Bloomwork and help couples heal and flourish. They're also the authors of multiple books on relationships. And today they will share their wisdom with you. This podcast is made by SenseCenter.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to SenseCenter.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. Let's head over and speak to Charlie and Linda Bloom. So welcome on the show today to both Charlie and Linda Bloom. I'm really excited to have you both on the show to talk about relationships and the dynamic and also in relation to the current crisis that we are facing because I think relationships are probably more important than ever and especially now when a lot of us are facing potential isolation for months um, how we can still relate and, and I even read that divorce rates apparently are going up now that people are being forced to actually spend time together um, so it really seems that this is a, a topic that's even more important than ever and I think to get you started because I know you've both written several books on relationships and I think I just want to start with if you could point out some of the things from these books that you think really stand out that you would like to mention to the audience and then we can maybe just take it from there. Well, there's themes that run through all the books that we write about the value of committing to the process of using what your relationship will flush up to learn about yourself to learn and grow and evolve into who we can be and to hopefully support our partner to do the same. And we, we think that that's a really good contract that couples can make with each other, that they're to bring the best out in each other. We have a wise elder in our tribe named Seymour Borstein, and he says that it's like we're both diamonds that are covered with gunk, and that as we, you know, uh, uh, have abrasion against each other, we have our differences, we have our reactivity, that it, it grinds off the gunk on the outside to reveal the beautiful diamond that's underneath. I love the metaphor and the symbol because sometimes relationships are difficult and demanding. And so to have that mentality that it's all part of the process of learning and growing. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I really like that metaphor about the gunk because it's also like, for me, the gunk is is part partly our story, right? The story that we have from from growing up, from past relationship, and whenever, even in communication, whenever we communicate with our partner, often we have to realize that what they say or do go through this layer of gunk and get interpreted through our past stories, you know, our attachment styles, etc., and therefore often gets misunderstood. And even having that self awareness. And remember that everything that comes in, maybe go through this layer of gunk first, makes us, you know, slow down before we act and maybe interpret things. So at least take it as true, our, our initial interpretation. Um, so I really like that analogy a lot. And you you bring in, and I heard you also talk about this both of you in, in some of the videos that I watched before this podcast, uh, which I really like, by the way. So I recommend people go check out your videos and your books. And it's very much about this topic of commitment, which again is really relevant because I see very much a culture, and I presume it's the same in the United States as here in the United Kingdom, of people treating each other as they are disposable. Um, because again, it's just a swipe away. You can go on these apps and you can meet 10 new people tomorrow um, and therefore constantly try and find faults in each other. And the way I see it, it's very difficult for any relationship to ever flourish when we are always treating each other as being disposable because, you know, people have this fear of commitment, I think you mentioned as well. But I also see this beauty in commitment because the foundation for a wonderful relationship, I feel, is safety. And how can we have safety if we are unable to make a commitment? So I don't know if you two have something you can kind of maybe talk a bit about, yeah, the, the commitment and, you know, the issues around that and also what people might be able to do if they have a fear around commitment. Wow. Well, thank you, Thomas, for that 
question. Um, I feel like you, you, you pretty much just stated the essence of what it is that we were going to talk about today, which, which really has to do with safety and how to create safety and why it is that it's so difficult to do that. Um, and I think that when we appreciate and, and understand why it is that we are drawn towards relationships in the first place, that it becomes easier to find the motivation to do the work. And it does, by the way, require work to create safety in a relationship. It's not just safety between two people, but it's safety within ourselves, that we create within ourselves a space of safety in which rather than beating ourselves up and judging ourselves and punishing ourselves when we feel uh, frustrated or upset or scared or angry, um, or doing the same thing with somebody else, um, when we can find a safe space in which we can bring what we really need at those times, because it's not punishment, it's not suffering, what we really need is, is compassion and acceptance and understanding. And <clears throat> until we can create that safe space within ourselves, we're gonna bring all of those tendencies to judge and to punish and to be defensive and to be uh, angry and to threaten. I mean, all that stuff that prevents us from really being close and intimate with another person, we're gonna bring that to the relationship. And the, the quick but difficult answer to the question of how do we create that safety within ourselves and between ourselves and each other is the V word. You know what that is? <laughs> vulnerable. We've got to be willing to risk vulnerability. And vulnerability always, without exception, feels like a risk. To be willing to be open, to express what we're feeling, to not be coercive and threatening and manipulative, but to be honest and to let the other person know what's going on within us in this moment and in this moment. That's the simple answer, but it's not. Easy, <laughs> but it's a beautiful, beautiful answer, and you literally just mention all the components. Because somebody asked me <laughs> not so long ago, actually, you know, how do we get love? What what is love? And I said, you know, we all have different definition of what love is, and and there's no specific scientific definition of what it is. But I said, I think I have a clear idea of how we get to experience it and it's something we can experience with everything and i think you mentioned the three elements here actually first one is safety if we don't feel safe we cannot open up second one you said is being vulnerable and taking that risk to be vulnerable and the last one you mentioned is then being met with acceptance you said also learning to be accepting and i think that is where love can flourish that's like the soil where the flower is able to grow and blossom Safety first, then vulnerability, and then acceptance. So I just really wanted to re-emphasize what you said because I think it's important, and I really want the listeners to get these three elements that you mentioned because, yeah, that that is where the the gold is found. That's where we get beneath the donk, isn't it? <laughs> when we keep digging, and also you mentioned effort, which I really like because, and again, this does come a bit from Hollywood. I think this notion that you know, if we're in love, then surely there should be no effort. It should just happen, right? Sex should just be great and happen spontaneously. Everything should be great. And it's just not true. And I don't know, would you be able, would you to be able to mention or maybe talk a bit more about that whole idea around effort? Yes, 
people of all ages, we run into this with the couples that we see in our counseling practice and in our workshops. They don't have to be young and starry-eyed like in their 20s. We find the romantic myth driving people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And they have a fantasy that there's the right person out there. There's the soulmate out there. If I can just find the right person, I'm not going to have to struggle with them. All these issues that keep coming up with the person that I'm with now and the arguments that we have and the misunderstandings. And if they loved me, they would read my mind. This is so much um, romantic myths. We wrote a whole book about you know, breaking up the romantic myths because they put a ceiling on how far our relationship can go. One of the romantic myths is it shouldn't have to be so, so hard. And people give up relationships that have huge potential because they hit a rough spot. And I just hate waste. I just think it's, it's such a waste to keep starting over with a new person when the relationship gets hard because that's a chance to learn more about themselves. That's a chance to learn more about the other person. That's a chance to learn more about how to create safety and how to be a more loving, accepting, tolerant, you know, and fair, just human being. When we hit those rough places, there's tremendous opportunity there. And, you know, now in this technological age where you can go on the dating site and have a hundred other options to start over with a fresh person, it's it's more tempting than it's ever been before to ditch a relationship when it gets to that place where we're challenged, where we're frightened, where the differences start to show each other when we leave the infatuation stage. So I'm always trying to help people see the big vision of what's possible for them, the incredible freedom and growth that's possible for them if they don't bail when things get uh, challenging. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for saying that. And also, I guess this applies to all relationships, not just romantic. And I can even mention for myself personally, um, I had a very challenged relationship with my brother. And in the beginning, for a long period of time, I basically caught contact with him. And then I realized just what you said right now is that actually, because he triggers me so much, there's a beautiful opportunity for growth because obviously it's because he brings out some of my core wounds of feeling not seen, not feeling heard and feeling not important or valued in the way that he communicate. And rather than blaming him, I've been able to turn towards him. And actually we speak frequently now. We just spoke last week and and try and be present with that discomfort. And I have, and then I just expressed it to him in an open way when it happens. I will say to him, I feel really patronized right now and I can feel I feel quite tense in my stomach. And then we can just stop and slow down and, and be with that. Um, and it's just a beautiful process because I notice again, just in doing that, how it translates to all my other relationships that now I feel more calm, even if people don't acknowledge, you know, my viewpoint or what it is I want to say. And and that's just, I just want to reemphasize the point you said that often when we want to run away, we forget that we are just going to take these same habits to the next person and the next person because it's often within us when actually we can look at this person and say, oh, they really trigger me, but maybe there's something really good I can learn here since they get to me so badly. Why are they getting to me so badly? Um, so thank you for, for bringing that, that point up. And also we talked a bit before, Charlie mentioned about safety and how important it is to create safety. And yeah, I really noticed that just recently, actually, when I had a small incident with my partner, normally we're very stable and safe, where the safety of the relationship was threatened a bit. And I noticed how suddenly everything that we communicated got interpreted through this negative bias because I felt unsafe. And now we've done a lot of healing work the last three weeks and I feel safe. And I can suddenly notice how things being said are interpreted through a positive bias. So it's just incredible to notice how the either safety or lack of safety actually make us interpret the events that happen through a different lens. And I, w I just wanted to ask you both, you know, what we know safety is important. And I think, you know, we both made that clear here. But how can people go about creating that safety if, if maybe they don't have it right now in their relationship? Well, that's the right question. Um, and I would take out the maybe because I would say that most people who have not done the work of becoming qualified to have 
of fulfilling committed partnership do not have sufficient safety in their relationship. Uh, I don't think it's a maybe, I think it's a fact. Um, and that's what we see that the common ground that um, almost all the couples have who come to us who are troubled. And it's not just troubled couples, couples who come to us. We have the good fortune to be able to work with a lot of couples who have been on this path for a while and they come in to enhance their relationship rather than to repair it. And that's always a pleasure to work with. I mean, not that we mind working with people who need repair work in their relationship, but these people are really on a growth path and they're looking to see, hey, how far can we go with this? This is great. We've already gone further than we thought we could go. And now we're, we're, we're hearing that we, we can go even further. Well, what does that look like? And so there's a fascination, there's a curiosity that some people have when they get to this point of getting up to neutral and beyond. But most people are struggling to get back up to neutral. So, so the, first, the, the first thing that, that you know, we, we've got to recognize if we're in that situation is we've got to tell the truth to ourselves. And the truth is, um, one aspect of the truth, the first thing that you see is <laughs> this is not working. What we are experiencing, what I am experiencing here is not what I had hoped for. This is not bringing about what we had both wanted to have. We're experiencing things that are not contributing to our well-being. And so, although that seems really obvious, well, of course, um, most of us have resistance to telling that truth. It not necessarily because we, we uh, don't want to, but because we, we're not even aware of it. We don't allow that into our consciousness because it's too painful. And it activates a lot of feelings that are very unpleasant. It, it activates anger and sometimes rage at the other person if we feel like it's their fault, and often we do. It activates shame and guilt if we feel like we screwed up and it's our fault and it confirms our fundamental belief that I'm a flawed human being and there's something wrong with me and then we can get into guilt and shame and hopelessness and despair. So, so we don't even want to take the first step, which is to tell the truth. Hey, this isn't, this isn't working. And then, of course, when you acknowledge that, then the next thing is, well, what to do now? And, and then to ask ourselves and each other, do we want to do something here? Do we want to see if we can improve things? And surprisingly, a lot of people answer that question with a no, because they've already decided that it's hopeless and why bother trying? It's only going to create more disappointment. Um, so, so, you know, there is work to do, like, like we have written in all of our books. And, and in the books, um, we, we try to detail what the nature of that work is. And it's not a generic answer because every person and every relationship is unique. And there's different areas that they need to work on, the different aspects of themselves that they have to develop and strengthen and become more skilled in. And I could give some examples. <clears throat> I, I'm a concrete thinker. I've got this very linear way of processing information. And I find that a lot of people appreciate having examples. To feel safe in our relationship, there has to be a high level of trust. And to establish a high level of trust, the agreements that are made, whatever they are, from the smallest ones to the largest ones, need to be kept. And some of us are very sensitive about withholding our partner withholding information from us, particularly about any secrets and lies that can damage the trust. So for people to be in integrity with each other, to always speak the truth of their experience, hopefully without the blame and judgment, and to be authentic with each other, that will really help the feeling of safety and trust. To 
handled differences well, like Charlie was speaking about, as they come up, instead of being reaction machines, to have curiosity and wonder about what is this touching off in me? And your example about your relationship with your brother was a beautiful example of taking responsibility for your own reactivity in that relationship. So you could learn to modify your own behavior to be more compassionate, be a healing in that relationship and have that relationship grow and thrive. And so learning how to speak our truth without the blame and judgment in it, because people don't want to be criticized and they don't want to be controlled and they don't want any, you know, ultimatums. They want to feel safe that they can make a mistake and they can heal and learn from the mistake and the person isn't going to throw them to the curb. And that's where the commitment comes in, that I'm committed to working with you to create a safe context in our relationship, a trusting rapport in our relationship so we wouldn't want to leave this relationship. Yeah, both. Really thank you both of you for those wonderful points. And I feel there's, there's kind of a theme also going through everything that you're both mentioning here which we haven't said directly, I guess, but it's very much about rather than trying to change our partner, try and do our own work, right, and and, and change ourselves because that we do have some control over. And I guess also a relationship of two people is only as good as the sums of those two people. So the way to improve the relationship is, you know, if I do my work and I grow, then the relationship grows and it's likely to then inspire my partner to some extent as well, hopefully, um, so yeah, the, the focus on self rather than constantly trying to change the other, I feel has been kind of a, a theme, which I think I really enjoy and I think is very right. And I think we also mentioned that, Charlie, I think you said once we really tune into that, that truth that, that maybe we are, you know, in a place that's quite painful, we have anger, resentment, which kind of leads me on to the next question. When we get to that place and if we have that acknowledgement that something is not right, or even as you said, we could go even further, how how can we get in touch with those emotions within ourselves, and how can we communicate that in a way to our partner so, so they don't get triggered or shut down? Because of course these are emotions that can be difficult to be present with, right? Both ourselves but also our partner, especially if they feel blamed. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about creating a safe space within ourselves. If I don't trust myself to be able to be understanding and uh, forgiving and accepting and compassionate with myself, which doesn't mean I indulge in bad behavior, you know, and I give myself permission to do things that are hurtful to, to, to anybody, but but if, if we can find that within ourselves we're, we're, and give ourselves, make that space safe within ourselves, we're going to be much more inclined to be willing to look at ourselves. Um, until we get to that place, our automatic reactivity is going to instantly take us to the other person because what we're committed to is not the relationship. What we're committed to is being safe from our own condemnation, from our own judgments, from our own accusations. Um, and so many of us developed this practice, this tendency to feel shame and fear when we find ourselves guilty of something that we think we, quote, should have known better. Um, th th that we you know, we, we tend to be living in this internal space of, of, of judgment. And it's a way of being loyal to our family of origin that probably in some ways taught us that punishment leads to redemption. You know, that if you do something wrong, then you have to be punished and then you're on your path to healing and redemption and forgiveness. Well, um, uh, and, and of course, institutions, um, <laughs> I won't mention any in particular, but many institutions uh, reinforce that idea. So 
we come into adulthood with these preconceived unconscious beliefs that this is what the responsible, appropriate way to deal with our own deficiencies and our own lapses of judgment or whatever, this is the way to do it. So we've got this program that's running us that is, it's basically a setup. You know, you can't, you can't not feel safe, unsafe. It's just, you know, there's no way that you can really come to a place of being able to be open and compassionate with others if you can't give that to yourself. So we've got to break that cycle. And um, that means, I mean, I'm really condensing this story, but that means risking being disloyal to our family and our institutions and our churches and our, uh, you know, educational system and everything else that reinforced that whole thing. It means being willing to risk being disloyal to them. So in order to really create um, a bond of, of safety and security and commitment in a relationship, you've got to be willing to risk the approval of those other people and those other groups um, who expected us to behave in accordance with their beliefs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, oh, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it brought me on actually to what I want to talk about like next, because I think also this way that we grow up and like you said, with how the educational system, our family also often makes us grow up with a lot of shame around our needs, right? And and feel shameful about expressing them or feeling we're not entitled to them or feeling that maybe nobody wants to hear them anyway, etc., etc. And I guess that that's part of why couples also struggle expressing their needs. But again, when when if people go do that work and they start expressing their needs more and they get actually good at that, which I've seen a lot of people who can learn to do when they understand their needs are valid and wanted and, and welcomed. And like you said, are met with acceptance. But I guess at that point, we always, and this is what I want to talk about next, we always go back to the, the Hollywood dream, I call it, is that we think our partners should be able to give us everything. And we suddenly run into this wall of disappointment when we, you know, people say, it's great, you taught me how to express my needs. But, you know, I just realized my partner can't give me all my needs. And that makes me pissed. I'm angry, and I'm disappointed. So how can couples deal with that when they end up running into that wall? Yeah, it's it's a very big challenge to come out of hiding about how many needs we have, how many needs we have to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel loved, to feel cherished, honored, respected, that our opinions may be different from our partners, but that they have merit in their own right. And so many of us didn't get that kind of validation and acknowledgement as kids. So we have a backlog from back way back when to really be met in a way that we're seen and heard and valued. And when we get in touch with that and we think we have a partner who maybe could be the corrective experience for not having been met there before, I think it's useful to actually make a contract and make an agreement that as best we can, we're not going to be able to do it all the time, but that we do have a commitment to the process of knowing what the other person's needs are and to meet them if we can and to be honest when we can't and to dry, draw a boundary and refer them back to themselves, refer them to their friends who may be able to meet them there and to realize our limitations, but also to realize our vast potential of being creative, being guilty of the sin about doing our family of origin, who probably did not model for us. So many families didn't model for us this kind of emotional honesty, where we took time to regularly be mom and dad with each other, with saying, 
what I love about you, what I appreciate about you. Thank you for the ways in which you enrich our life because everybody needs that kind of sweetness. Everybody needs to know that they're enriching the lives of the people who they cherish and are enriched by. And so when we can speak the truth about that and not hold on to our truth be just because I expressed it, it should be met now. No, we mustn't hold on to it with a white knuckle grip. We hold on to it lightly. We speak our truth. We ask for what we want. We tell what our needs are. Please don't bang into that sore area that's so sore for me. Can you be respectful of that? That's a really tender area for me. That is a, a profound agreement that a couple can make and a healing one. Thank you. And I also feel that, that there's something beautiful in just being present with this appointment too, right? In in the fact that we don't have to solve it, but just be present. I know that one of my friends, actually, I just spoke to her yesterday. She's based in San Francisco and she's had a challenging time with her partner because she wanted to open up their relationship and he didn't. And I guess I think they went down a really dark path for the last six months because they started getting into a blame game. And of course, as I talked to her about, it started out with the fact that the fundamental safety was threatened. So he obviously felt the safety was threatened. And from that place, again, we can't build something wonderful from that place. I get understanding. And now they seem to have got to that place too where they realize that even though she likely can't get what, what she wants right now, or she can't if she wants to stay with him, but he can then be present with her in that disappointment. And that in itself can be really healing and even to some extent connecting to just say, you know, I hear you. I I get that this is really disappointment and I'm here to listen to your disappointment, even though I can't fix it. Um, and yeah, I don't know what would you two think about that. I just feel sometimes there's, and I guess for men this is really hard because we always think we have to fix things um, and make it better. But there can be something I find very healing about just being present with that disappointment too, right? Oh, that's an understatement, Thomas. It's something that is incredibly powerful about being able to show up with somebody and for somebody and really listen. We call that committed listening, where you're giving 100% of your attention and your open-hearted caring to that person when they're speaking. And that in itself is transformative. That in itself will provide an experience if both people are showing up for that. It doesn't mean that you know it's over now and everything is fixed. What it means is that maybe the stuff that I thought needed to be fixed doesn't need to be. Maybe it is possible to live, at least temporarily, with what we call irreconcilable differences. And that's one of the other myths. Uh, in fact, it's even built into our legal system in this country. Um, in the days when you had to have a, quote, legitimate reason for divorcing, um, Irreconcilable differences was considered the primary reason. As though, oh, okay, if there's two things that you can't reconcile over, then that means that there's, there's no point in staying together. Um, we have seen many, many relationships, including our own, which we wrote about in our fourth book, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, uh, with irreconcilable differences. Um, not only did Linda and I have those differences, <laughs> we still have them. <laughs> and we've sort of recognized that we're probably always going to have them. Um, and I'm not talking about big things like, I mean, they're all big things, of course. I'm, I'm not talking about things like w whether or not you are in agreement about having children. I mean, some irreconcilable differences are what we call deal breakers. Or monogamy and polyamory. That's another one. That's another one. Some of them can be deal breakers, but most of the things that people call irreconcilable differences are actually points of view or perspectives that they disagree on. Uh, they're not fundamental to each person. Um, they're things that can be um, worked out if there's a commitment to doing that. So some of the ways that we work it out is we both try to get on the same page one way or the other, and if we can't, 
we we both try to learn how to um, move at least somewhat in the other person's direction. And when both people are on opposite sides of the fence, <clears throat> but they're both making a serious committed effort to be more understanding of the other person's view, it doesn't mean that they're ever gonna necessarily totally agree with it. But <clears throat> when, when they can both trust that they're both making an effort to, to somehow come to terms with this in a way that they can include the difference in the relationship because we have to do that. There are certain fundamental differences that we have that we can learn to live with if we're willing to focus on how do I need to be? What do I need to do? How can, what's my work here as opposed to trying to get the other person to come around and agree with me? Yeah, and you know what? I think I have a, a good little example, a practical example again from my own relationship to Freud here to illustrate that point. And I think part of it is also this idea of giving our partner a map of ourselves and getting a map of them so we can understand each other better. And and these differences can even become our strength when we understand and don't have to try and, like you said, get our partners to be a certain way. Um, so it, even with my partner, she can be very disorganized and she's aware of that and I'm aware of that and, and I'm very organized and need planning. And initially when we met, this could obviously cause some some issues because there were very different styles of doing things. One is very spontaneous, free-spirited and the other one very structured and she loses things all the time. And instead I said, you know what, why don't we see this as strength rather than weaknesses because the fact is I now understand that you struggle to know where your things are so I can use my systematic brain to put system into place like putting up a place where you hang the car key and i can organize things in advance so you don't have to and make sure you know that's running smoothly and again you have this beautiful strength in in the chaos that you are amazing at coming up with creative solutions that i find harder and you know you can help come up with new ideas for places we go see and she's amazing at that and by having this map and understanding each other, um, and what, what I would say initially is quite different, you know, one who like quite chaotic, messy, and the other one quite orderly, that could bring a lot of conflict, has ended up actually bringing us closer together by having this understanding and see how can we enhance each other as a team rather than use it to, to put each other down. Uh, you hear Charlie chuckling in the background. We we have this dynamic with the two of us because I'm the I'm the form and structure person and he's Mr. Spontaneity. And so it's been a source of irritation in years past, but we, now we've learned from the differences and it really has made a huge difference. We have a lot of ways that we're different and this is one of many, but respecting the differences and learning from the differences has really enlivened our relationship. Beautiful. And they can even make us stronger as a team, right? Because that's what it means that we are now together. We have different sets and strengths that we can that we can help support each other with and that's why i find having this map of each other and understanding is so important um but yeah i wanted to get a bit back to what we spoke before we went live which is we were talking about you know this whole idea in society where we glorify independence and being you know standing on our own two legs and not needing others because i think it was quite an important point that i wanted to talk about as well here on the podcast um, and I don't know if you can talk a bit about this and how that, again, obviously also limit our ability to, to, I guess, to express our needs because we feel all this shame about needing others. Is that something you two could maybe, yeah, talk a bit about? I would love to hear, hear some on that topic. In our culture, independence is worshipped. You know, the individual, the individual, the independent individual. And we're blessed that we get to teach in other countries and not every country has it as heavy as we do here in the United States. And we are interdependent beings. And I believe that this coronavirus is showing how interdependent all the countries are on each other and how people to get through this challenging time are going to need to help each other. And so it may be one of the gifts that comes in this crisis that we really understand at a much deeper level how interbeing, how interdependent we all are. And I think that that 
could could be one of the beautiful things that comes from this challenging time. I'm hoping and praying that that will be true because we do need other people for our basic survival. We need them. But certainly after we get past the basic survival level to grow into who we can be, do you know, to self-actualize is um, Maslow uses the term, to become who we have the potential to become, to use the dormant abilities and to, um, to, to live our best possible life in relationship with other people that we are supporting to become the best that they can be. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I, yeah, it's a beautiful point. And I just want to let that linger because yeah, I think, again, like I, I mentioned to you two before, it took me years to come to this realization that it's not only okay, but it's it's a natural part of our biology to need other people. And to be able to express that without the shame of feeling needy is so utterly freeing. And being able to you know, express to my partner now when I actually need her and reach out and then be met is really, really healing. Um, for having lived a whole lifetime of feeling I should do everything myself and the disconnect that that brings. So thank you for, for touching on that. And yeah, I, th I think there's probably a lot of people sitting out there and, and nodding and thinking these are all really good concepts and really good tips. And and I guess we all want to get to this place of, of realization and realizing our potential, etc. But to take it back to where some people might be right now to, to their reality, if people are stuck in day-to-day -day conflict cycles and it might be very hard to do some of the things we are talking about right now is there some ways or some tools that people can can do or that you maybe can give people that they can help to get unstuck from these destructive cycles that they might be in there are and um <clears throat> we uh, try to <clears throat> include um suggestions um, and, and descriptions of what some of those tools are in our books and our blogs and our workshops. Um, but what's more important than, I mean, the, the tools of course are incredibly important, but many people are too quick to jump to, okay, so how do I fix this? What are the tools? And they haven't gone through the preliminary stages of the process which requires them to, first of all, uh, you can give somebody um, the correct tool to um, uh, fix a problem. But if they don't know how to use that tool and if they haven't learned the correct means of applying that, um, and if they don't have the belief that they can learn how to do that, then the tool is worthless. So we, when people come to us and they're looking for tools, more often than not, what we have to do is kind of rewind the film back to uh, what we consider to be more primary questions, you know, like, um, what is it that you want to have happen here? Get specific. How do you want things to change in your relationship? Do you believe that that's possible? What is it that you think that's gonna require of you? Do you have that in you? Do you trust your partner to be committed to that? If not, how do you plan to deal with that? I mean, there are some very basic questions that have gotta be addressed and, and also responded to in, in ways that we prepare to use the tools effectively and consciously and intentionally. Um, but, 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 you know, some of the things that we're talking about here, ultimately getting to the point where we can bring more commitment into the relationship. We can deal with some of our fears that are keeping us from being vulnerable. We can become more willing to develop the qualities within ourselves that the relationship needs, but has been lacking. We can deepen our intention and our commitment to making this the best possible relationship that it can be. Uh, we can be willing to risk the kind of vulnerability that that's gonna require. We can practice, we can practice and practice because that's what it takes. It's repetitive 
practices of continually saying no to the defensive impulses of control and manipulation and, uh, and, and other forms of coercion and get vulnerable and tell the truth and be willing to risk the relationship. We, we often say that you can't really have a, a very fulfilling relationship if you're not willing to risk the relationship. If you don't feel that you can live without this person, if you feel that your life depends upon this relationship, if you will do anything, including sacrifice your own integrity for the relationship, that relationship isn't worth having. So you've got to get yourself up to being a qualified, competent player. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And I love this point that you you both keep really hitting home about vulnerability because it's just it's at the core and i i always say i feel in any moment in any interaction we have with another human being we have a choice to make whether we show up vulnerable or whether we do the opposite and shut down and get defensive and put up the wall and every little moment of these choices we make end up forming our relationship and you know a lot of people ask me why i have such a beautiful nurturing relationship with my partner it doesn't mean we don't have rocky challenges of course all relationship you know have that but why is it still so nurturing and it really is and i a part of me fought back at that and of course it's a safety but it's also the fact that from the very moment we started dating even after two weeks i chose and she met me there to show up with vulnerability and when i felt you know i know she was going to lots of different dating events and i just didn't i felt unease in my body and i said to her i'm not judging you you're allowed of course to do whatever you want you're a free woman but i just want to know where we stand and again that felt very vulnerable for me to say that and say you know i i prefer that we just date each other so but i just want to know what what is it that you want so we at least have clarity and then she met me there and we had a really open discussion um, and that started again, like I said, these early small bits. And, you know, initially I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. That sounds very needy. And part of me wanted to to shut down and retreat. But I realized I can't have that intimacy I want if I do that. So instead, I kept choosing to actually just be vulnerable and say, this is what I need to feel safe. Um, and I just feel that constantly is these small bits, right? And we had to make that choice every day. It's not just a one one-off decision we constantly because it takes courage like i think you both said a few times because it can be scary and it is i guess a risk that's why we call it vulnerability um so yeah i just really wanted to to again hit home that point and also i saw a term that i think you two mentioned and please correct me if it's wrong called enlightened self-interest and i just want to ask what do, what does that mean can you two maybe clarify that yes when we want something and we're asking for something that if we can frame it in a way that our partner sees that there's a lot in it for them too, we're, we're issuing an invitation for them to join us. So it may not be at the top of their priority list, but if they can see that they're going to feel so good about themselves being a superior partner, if they can stretch into our world, and if they can connect the dots that when you have a happy wife, you have a happy life, they can sometimes get over, this is not at the top of my priority list, this isn't too important to me, they're more apt to stretch into our world. And when Charlie appeals to my enlightened self-interest, he's very introverted and he needs a lot of time in solitude. I used to take it so personally and feel rejected. When he would talk to me about how happy he is and how he thrives when he has a lot of solitude, that I, if I could just support him in that, then I, he would have so much more to 
bring to me. He appealed to my enlightened self-interest. And I know that if I'm the guardian of his solitude and encourage him every month to go off on meditation retreat so he can have time completely alone, he doesn't have to consider me or anybody else's needs and do what he wants to do in the moment when he wants to do it. When he comes back from retreat, he has so much more to give me and everybody else in his life. So to to think before we ask for what we want about how this can benefit both of us, that's enlightened self-interest. I love that because, again, it's bringing in this idea that we we are a team. And while we obviously have individual needs, then then we still need to both go on this journey together. So I think that's, I, I haven't thought about it in that way. I really love that expression. So I'm happy I asked that. And, you know, I could go on for so long, but I just realized we've gone over an hour. So I could bring you back on another podcast and I would love to do that in the future. But I think before we finish off, I would love if you two could maybe just tell the listeners how they could get in contact with you, get more information. If they, you mentioned a few of your books, where can they find these books? And just yeah, some general information so people can obviously get in contact with you. Well, if they can remember Linda Bloom, Charlie Bloom, or Bloomwork, our website is www.bloomwork.com. It's singular. It will show our four books. We hope to have a fifth one out this year on conflict management, our blogs. There's links to Psychology Today and Psych Central and the places that we blog. We have all kinds of free things on our website. The blogs, of course, are all free and we have three free eBooks, one on conflict, one on sexuality, and one on 10 important things we've learned since we got married. If they come to our, join up on our email list, they will have that. And they will see that we do Facebook Live once a week, and they're also posted on YouTube. So if they can remember Bloomwork, they go to our website and they can see where we're teaching classes, that we do Zoom and Skype sessions all over the world, and they'll see where we're teaching and what's available for support to enhance their relationships to be the best, most splendid they can be. Thank you so much to both of you. And also for people out there, if they can't remember, if they just go on Google um Charlie and Linda Bloom, then I know your website will also come up on top because I just done that myself before the podcast. So that's an easy way too. And I would really recommend go check out the books and also get in contact if if you want to work with uh, Charlie and Linda. I know myself, I worked with social and emotional learning for over 10 years and Charlie and Linda really know what they're talking about. And yeah, as you can see from their videos, they're very genuine and wonderful human beings who really want to help people. So I get no commission for saying this at all. I just purely sense that you two have a lot of wonderful things to add. So I want to thank you both for coming on this podcast. And I definitely hope that I get to speak to both of you another time. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate and passionate relationship, then head over to sensensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down the how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast.